Hi, everybody. It's Brian Norcross, and welcome to edition number three of our weather podcast. I'm here with uh, meteorologist uh, Luke Doris once again um, on our local 10 WPLG weather uh, podcast. Luke, uh, hello again. We, we made it to week number three. We're here, my man. All right. All right. Uh, I got to remind you, this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at Miccosukee.com. We're recording this uh, podcast on uh, Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018. So if you're listening at some point in the future, be sure and check in with the Local 10 uh, weather app, Max Tracker app, or or uh, local10.com for current information because uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in the tropics here on July 3rd. Obviously, uh, things are going to change as we move into uh, hurricane season. Luke, uh, we're talking uh, about a really stable-looking uh, tropical picture out there. What's going on right now? Yeah, we still have the cooler-than-normal Atlantic uh, temperatures for this time of year. It's still, you know, you say that, it's, it's warm in parts of the Gulf and uh, the Caribbean. But the Atlantic is nice and cool, so we have that. We also have uh, strong high pressure, so shear is up, so that helps. And then the big one that we've been seeing a lot of lately, that's Saharan air layer. And uh, it, it, you know, I'm no expert in the Saharan air layer, but if you look at the model output on this, it just looks like it keeps on coming uh, all the way as far out as I, the Geos models, the one that I've been looking at. And you get into next week, and it's just outbreak after outbreak. So that's that, that's that hot air that's. Uh, elevated it's a loft and that puts a little lid on the atmosphere and and keeps storms from wanting to develop so we like that yeah and also the hazy skies across florida and and even over into texas is very very hazy and the strong high pressure system over the atlantic is actually um, responsible for this in some fashion the pressures across the entire tropical atlantic are above average which is uh, generally a sign that we'll have less tropical development also creates stronger winds across the Atlantic, which turns up the water, makes it cooler, and if it's oriented just right, pulls the dust off of Africa. So anyway, all that's uh, good. We'll talk about that with our guests here coming up in just a moment. So today we're going to have uh, folks from FEMA with us, with, and we're going to talk about the Hurricane Liaison Team, which is a very important and um, I would say in my time, relatively new, even though it's been around a, a good while, but in terms of the development of this organization within the National Hurricane Center, it's FEMA embedded in the National Hurricane Center, right? What's called the, the Hurricane Liaison Team. And uh, Brandon Malinsky, who is the FEMA Hurricane Program Manager, is gonna be with us, as well as my old friend, Michael Lowry, meteorologist uh, with uh, FEMA Region 4, in Atlanta is going to be here, and Michael uh, has a multi-varied career in meteorology and in emergency management. So we're going to talk about the interface between uh, emergency management and and uh, hurricane forecasting at the National Hurricane Center. So, uh, Brandon, uh, welcome, and Michael, welcome to our uh, podcast here on Local 10 WPLG. Thank you, Brian and Luke. Uh, enjoy being here. Good to be here, Brian. So, uh, Brandon, let's let's talk about the Hurricane Liaison Team and, and your role with the hurricane program at FEMA and how you try and help this interface between the hurricane forecast from the National Hurricane Center and emergency management decisions. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a multi-pronged approach. Um, 
you mentioned the hurricane program, and that's kind of the grand scheme of things. Um, uh, working with the National Hurricane Center, um, even in the off-season doing training and, and preparedness outreach, um, working with our Corps of, Engineer, uh, Corps of Engineers to help support modeling and, and studies to help locals and states. So there's this, we're always working with these, the, the gurus, the smart guys that, that are doing the forecasts who we're going to be looking to uh, during hurricane season to provide that information for decision makers and evacuations and uh, uh, local officials. So um, we work with them in the off season, dealing with training and, and, and reviewing products and uh, at conferences and speaking and talking about these these very pertinent things that make a difference. And the the you mentioned the hurricane liaison team, that is the operational support tool basically. We work with them off-season. We built those relationships, which are so key, um, and now continuing that when there's a storm out there. Um, something they learned back in the uh, mid-'90s is that the Hurricane Center are forecasters. They are really, you know, nose, nose down in these forecasts, trying to put the best forecast they can, and the support of the HLT brings in that communications part. They're putting out these products but getting some of that other information to help support those very expensive, very, very tough decisions to make to protect citizens, um, where we're really that communications arm operationally to support the counties or states and, and other uh, agencies making those tough decisions. Yeah, you mentioned the mid-90s. It was Hurricane Opal, wasn't it, that really pointed out the need to uh, help support emergency management decisions? Uh, Hurricane Opal developed rapidly in the Gulf, much more quickly than was in the official forecast, and headed uh, toward the Florida Panhandle on kind of a beeline. It was a really scary event. Exactly. As, as we know, um, the Hurricane Center is updating their forecast, trying to get the best forecast they can out there, and uh, just as you and the media are updating the public routinely on these, uh, emergency managers need to have that routine update. and. It was opal that things were changing rapidly overnight. It just really bad timing uh, went from something pretty weak to something very strong and big and moving faster. There's a almost a triple threat of, of intensification that they said, you know what? We talked to these guys some, but we need someone to help support this. We're trying to keep up with the forecast when these, these highly dynamic situations evolve in front of them, and, and they're trying to push out this information, but that next step of start making calls to, to the right people to, to ensure that they're getting this information. Um, thankfully, you know, this is back in the 90s, we have so many other methods now to get information. Uh, truthfully, no joke, back then, people were getting their forecasts via fax. Nowadays, yeah. you know, we have these personal computers in our pockets. Um, so uh, it's changed in, in, in years. And back in the day, it was just getting the forecast out. Now it's all these great products that are trying to solve a lot of our issues, trying to support those. It's kind of uh, developed over the past years. And that's kind of, it's kind of neat to see and, and, and be a part of that. Hey, guys, Luke yeah, I here. Have a little, I, have, I have a little Hurricane Opal story. Hang on, Luke, just one second. Let me just wrap up Opal because it was such an interesting uh, event. Uh, I, I saw this happening in real time. I was working in Miami, of course, and, and uh, I called over the National Hurricane Center and talked to Jerry Gerald, who was – who was in 95. I don't think he was director yet. I'm not sure. But in any case, um, Jerry was really scared because the storm had so outperformed them. 
their forecasts and and uh, intensified in a surprising way and these evacuations were ordered but people were on the road and uh, subsequently went up there to the Panhandle to Oakland County after the event and talked to emergency managers up there and it was only really because the uh, storm weakened significantly before it came ashore that that wasn't a disaster that we talk about uh, to this day. Uh, they had people on the road and there was construction with I-10 and the, the, the traffic was backed up and people couldn't go anywhere and it turned around and it was really a frightening event and, and Opal weakened to essentially a category two by landfall. But anyway, I remember uh, a lot of the discussion after uh, opal about that uh luke go ahead sorry yeah, so following up with that brian so was i'm just thinking back to opal uh was it a real quick flare-up real quick drop back down in intensity uh is, is that how opal played out tell me a little bit more about opal um as i remembered i was i was uh, living in the panhandle at the time too and and, and going back many times because it's a great training case actually on what how the intensity of a storm the size of a storm and the forward speed of a storm changes those planning factors as a decision maker. Um, the more intense storm means you're going to have potentially more storm surge and more harmful wind. They, so you'll have to increase your evacuation zones or numbers. So that increases your time. Uh, if it's larger, that can increase your storm surge and that those, those hazards also. And then the forward speed shortens the amount of time you have to do it. So all those happened uh, overnight. Um, relatively quick, and the forecast changed also. It went from slowly moving off the Texas coast towards the central Gulf Coast to moving at a beeline towards uh, the uh, Florida Panhandle, Alabama coast uh, pretty quick, and it intensified. Uh, it was, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if it qualifies for rapid intensification. Uh, Michael probably could talk to that some, but um, uh, it was one of those that really took over pretty quick. And, but it just as uh, Brian mentioned, it happened at a time where they, people were asleep at home in, in just a relatively short amount of time. So flare-up might be a way to, to describe it. Yeah, the other late. thing, Brian and Luke, I would add to this conversation is we talk about rapid identification. And, and yes, that is important, particularly when you talk about preparedness and response from the emergency management side. But you also have to consider how long were we aware that the storm existed? So the formation to landfall is another issue that we potentially would deal with as well, where you could have a storm that didn't exist and within 24 hours is making landfall as a hurricane. And, and we've seen that in recent years. Uh, you know, the most recent example of that was Umberto in 2007. Uh, it formed on September 13th at 8 a.m. in the morning, it made landfall, I'm sorry, September 12th at 8 a.m., it made landfall at September, on September 13th at 3 a.m. So you didn't even have 24 hours notice that this storm even existed. Now, we do look at forecast models. We have some indication that something might form. But this went from a nothing uh, disturbance to a Category 1 hurricane in 19 hours. Uh, uh, thankfully, it, it made landfall east of High Island in a relatively sparsely populated uh, region, but if that were to happen, you know, take a, a big city or a more populated, densely populated region along the coast, that would be a, a big concern. So there's the rapid intensification part uh, where a storm spins up, you know, it, it go, maybe some storms like Opal went from, uh, I can't remember where it went from, it went from Cat 1 to a 4 in a matter of 24 hours, but you also have the other examples of storms that 
didn't exist that overnight turned into a big something. And, and, and Umberto, that was kind of an overnight deal. So you, you, getting the word out to people during the, the witching hours is not an easy task from, from a communication standpoint. Michael and Brandon, you were talking about rapid intensification. What can we say about progress and understanding like how often this happens and forecasting when it might happen? Any thoughts there? Um, you know, this, this is a, 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 the lane of the, the National Hurricane Center, so you know, they would have the, the more recent information on it. I, I would just say that we've gotten better at seeing rapid intensification in advance. I think there have been advances in the statistical modeling some of the uh, environmental factors that we look at, like the sea surface temperature, like the wind shear, you know, you, you can look at in the past how have those interacted with storms in terms of their intensification rate. That has given us a heads up. But also the, the, the modeling has gotten better. The H-Wharf model, I know, has improved our understanding of intensification and, and forecasting of intensification. Um, so I would say, and I think the Hurricane Center would probably agree, that rapid intensification and intensification forecasts in general have gotten better in the last five or ten years. And a lot of it's been. But don't you the, think? The, the, the oh, go ahead, Brandon. Sorry. Improvement project. Yeah. So say it again, Brandon, because I think I cut you off. Right, yeah. The a uh, lot of that's been due to the hurricane forecast improvement project. They really have put out some really lofty goals among that group to really improve their intensity forecast. They know their track forecasts historically have just gotten really good. They've really dialed in those forecasts. Um, even at five days, uh, they're getting better on average. Uh, the intensity forecasts, I think that what we've seen from the Hurricane Center uh, past years, they, they've, they've been touting that they are making some progress within just general intensification. So that's good to hear. Um, uh, it's one of those tough, sticky wickets that the nuts to crack or, or whatever you want to call it. but. Uh, they're, they're slowly making, chiseling away at those those areas. And Luke, just so we're yeah. clear and that your audience knows, when we say rapid intensification, the definition of it is an increase in the speed, the maximum wind speeds of, of a storm of 35 miles per hour or more um, in 24 hours. So there's that 35 miles per hour at least in 24 hours. It's not something I would say is necessarily an, an uncommon event um, about, I think, maybe 25 to 33, you know, one, one in four, one in three, one in four storms every year undergoes in the Atlantic, undergoes some sort of rapid intensification. So it's something that happens. It's not rare, um, but it's less frequent. And it's something that certainly, you know, folks along the coast need to be aware of that we don't have as we, the forecasters, the National Hurricane Center, uh, doesn't have necessarily as good of a handle on those type of storms say, than, than as a well-formed, um, you know, storm that's, that's slowly strengthening. Uh, very good. Thank you for that, you know, uh, letting us know exactly what that means. And I want to say, too, um, you know that guy on social media, that one person that likes, like, everything that you put out, no matter what it is? That's me with Michael Lowry. <laughs> it's an mm. awesome Twitter account. You need to follow him. Follow Brandon, too. You'll be glad that you did. So, uh, yeah, thanks for not getting too creeped out and muting me or anything. No, no, always on there. It's, thank you, Luke, for spreading the good news. Oh, man, it's incredible <laughs> what you put out. So I retreat about everything that you say. So, hey, back to the liaison team. Uh, you know, getting a, a handle on exactly your role, is it accurate to say that you translate the hurricane forecast from the Hurricane Center uh, for emergency managers, and if that's the case, uh, what questions are you guys most often asked? Yeah, and that's that's a good that's a great uh, question because 
I, I have a degree in meteorology, worked in meteorology for years, uh, also started off in emergency management uh, at the same time and found my way back into emergency management. Something we learn real quick is the vernacular and how we use words and how we define certain things in emergency management is different than how we define it in, in, in the weather world, meteorologists. Uh, one word means two different things, like favorable. It means two different things One to an emergency manager and to a, a meteorologist when we're talking about a hurricane with favorable conditions. Um, so there is some of that translation there. And, and truthfully, when, when as, as we have all these great ways to communicate through the social media and, and the, the TV and, and, and we're seeing people putting out all these great information on, on what's the latest and greatest, um, emergency managers want to have that leg up on, okay, so what does this mean to me now? How does, how do I interpret this very technical explanation of what might be happening with the storm? What's important to me? And um, a lot of times uh, there is that translation. I don't, I don't want to say we're translators per se all the time, but um, it's that extra support, and that's what we found. It's really been beneficial sitting here with emergency managers as they might be getting briefings and getting that, that direct communication, whether it be a conference call or a video teleconference or looking at the advisory itself, um, you know, just helping be that extra voice of reason, for lack of better terms, and, and helping them pick out what's important. And that, we find that a lot of times when there's, we're, we're constantly updating, you know, new advisory every six hours and there's a change. It's the so what. You know, so what, it's now a category two. How does that change what I'm playing for and what, what we're expecting? And, and sometimes it doesn't change. Maybe we were already planning for that. So the Hurricane Liaison Team um, it has a few critical missions, as we already mentioned, that, that rapid, if something was to go wrong in the middle of the night kind of thing, helping support the Hurricane Center and getting that message out. But also um, making sure that the Hurricane Center can get those direct communications with states or conference calls um, when there's technical information they might be hinging on there uh, uh, very soon. Take a very complicated scenario like Hurricane Sandy when we're dealing with a, a certain scenario that's, you know, we're using different terms like uh, post-tropical or, 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 you know, we start throwing some of these terms around. Um, uh, how does that, what does that mean to them? How do they interpret that? And, you know, a lot of times, it's, it is, as you probably know, you go back to what are the impacts? What are the hazards? How does this change what's going to happen to these communities um, looking back at that? So keeping that focus on that. And, and the Hurricane Center has done a good job of that. As we see more of these products uh, coming out, like the uh, storm surge probabilities and the wind speed probabilities, and then there's a wind speed timing, a lot of, a lot of products support those. So a lot of times we're helping that communication of these are the new products, here's how we interpret them, and here's how we use them in, in, in emergency management. I, I yeah, if you think about too, it, uh, um, the, the, what we're doing as a broadcaster really is trying to translate the information from the National Hurricane Center and do the same thing for the public. right? And what you were describing that the Hurricane Liaison Team does for emergency management is to try and, and sort through the tremendous amount of information and focus on uh, you know what what's the most important and what the public needs to react to in terms of the impact that this information would have. Michael, you were going to say something? Yeah, Brian, I was, I, I was just going to piggyback on what Brandon was saying. Uh, 
just having seen the hurricane liaison team when I was down at the National Hurricane Center, I was not part of the hurricane liaison team, but from the outside uh, perspective, I saw the, the benefit of the, the, and the value that they added to the forecast, to the information that was being relayed to the emergency managers. It's really critical information that is that, uh, sure, you mean you can read a forecast, you can read an advisor, but it's not telling you the so what factor necessarily, and that's what Brandon and his team do. Uh, on the hurricane liaison liaison team is they really break it down in terms of in, in planning, they call them planning factors, but what really matters to the emergency manager. What I would brief on television, uh, or say brief, or present on television in terms of information on a storm uh, might be very different from what you would, you would brief an emergency manager because they're looking for different information to make key decisions that necessarily you know, uh, would be, if you're briefing the public, might be down a little bit on the list in, in terms of, of that information um, that would be um, critical to, to them. Well, sure. Uh, emergency managers, are just, just so we're clear for people that are listening to the podcast, which may not really understand what all that emergency managers do, but decisions like who needs to be evacuated need to be made, and uh, they need to be made well in advance of the, the of real certainty at the coast of exactly where the highest storm surge threat is going to be, where the uh, deadly uh, storm surge uh, might uh, occur. So these are very difficult decisions made uh, well before there is absolute certainty. Which, Michael, uh, this is really your area of expertise, and I learned a tremendous amount about storm surge when uh, you and I worked together at the Weather Channel. Uh, talk about the difficulty in making emergency management decisions regarding evacuations and the, uh, the little bit of, of uh, forecast differences or track differences, intensity differences, size differences, uh, angle differences that can change the amount of storm surge that actually occurs at the coast and, and the challenge that presents. Yeah, I'll let Brandon chime in, uh, being our hurricane program manager, because he's intimately involved in a lot of these hurricane evacuation studies that um, really uh, tease out these evacuation zones and the updates that go into those. Um, you know, I just say that in terms of storm surge, there are so many different factors that play into in subtle changes that can impact the magnitude and the scale, the extent, the breadth of the scope of the surge. And, you know, those can be anything from the forward speed, how fast or how slow a storm's moving, uh, the size of a hurricane, a small hurricane versus a large hurricane, a larger hurricane would produce a, a, a bigger storm surge. And that footprint um, being very dependent on the, on the geography of the coastline, um, the geography of uh, take the western side of Florida is very different than the geography on the east coast of Florida, particularly the ocean floor itself, which is much more shallow on the west side versus the steep drop-off that you encounter there closer uh, to Miami and Palm Beach in, in your viewing area. Uh, that the, the steeper shelf tends to produce less of a storm surge than the more shallow, wider shelf. So I mean, that's just a few, and obviously the intensity Plays into um, plays into that as well. So when you're planning on evacuations and, and you're talking about having to, to get people out, in some cases, you know, 24, 36, 48 plus hours in advance, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the forecast on where the storm might go. 
so you know Brandon and, and, and his team and and you know uh, particularly the locals who are making the, these decisions are having to consider all sorts of different scenarios so there are tools that they use and that they have at their disposal to, to effectively vary the uh, the landfall location, the size of the storm, the, the forward speed of the storm. So they look at all of these scenarios when they're having to, to come up with an evacuation decision. And that's good for the, I think it's good information for the public to know because oftentimes I think the public sees a forecast in a, uh, in a single track fashion. They don't think of, well, what happens if it goes to the left a little bit? What happens if it goes to the right a little bit or gets bigger? Forecasting the size of a storm is not an easy thing. And, um, you know, that's just one of many factors. So it's good for the public to know, hey, the, the emergency managers are considering all of these different things. And so when they ask you to evacuate, there's a darn good reason they're asking you to evacuate. Um, you know, so I, I can let Brandon speak a little more to, the, to what goes into these evacuation studies, but just know that there is a lot. There is a lot, and it's, and it's even beyond in terms of the evacuation studies. He can speak more on this. There's transportation analyses. There are societal behavioral analyses. How are people going to respond? when you ask them to evacuate. So it really does, like all of our planning, include so many different <laughs> you know, experts, yeah. uh, community members um, in, in determining what these evacuations are look like. Right, part of, the, part of what we train on and part of our role when we plan is also understanding what products are available to us. That we're not gonna have some of these very detailed products when we need them, um, especially in large uh, cities or areas where there's a lot of cities in one area and we have large regional clearance times, South Florida, Southwest Florida, uh, the Tampa area, where we have a lot of people getting on the road at once. They need a lot of time to make those decisions. And uh, the practice of using maximum of maximums, what, if the storm was to hit here at a certain intensity, um, at a certain angle, or, or any angle, um, what could I see? For life safety, if we're in the business of life safety, I want to get a forward, make sure everybody can get out that needs to get out that's going to be, have the possibility of getting flooding. So we look at these maximum maximums now and build evacuation zones off them. Um, and then we start with that. And, 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 and believe it or not, if you just, if you just, back in the day, back during Hurricane Opal, when we first started doing a lot of these analyses, the emergency manager would ask, how intense is the storm and how long do I have? And that's all they needed to really to set that mark on the wall and when they need to do evacuations. Um, but now with a lot of these great products, we're looking at the timing of storm surge. We're looking at the direction a little more. Um, so as you mentioned, Brian, little changes make a difference, but if we start with that maximum, maximum, that's my, these are my big zones. These are the areas that I know have the potential and build our evacuation zones and our timing, a lot of our planning off that, and then we can back down and when we get closer to the storm make a landfall, make some informed decisions on how to maybe slice and dice. And we're seeing a lot of the large metropolitan areas like Miami-Dade, um, uh, New York City, looking at some more directions and being in, when they're making their decisions, thinking about that every storm is different. As Michael said, every storm is different, but we can pick out maybe a general direction of a storm uh, and intensity and forward speed is, is a tough one still. Um, maybe not try to go too far into figuring out the size, but if we can get a little bit of a direction, we can take some scenarios out of play. Um, the great case is uh, uh, going back to New York City and Sandy, just a year before was Irene. 
more paralleling storm versus Sandy, a more uh, perpendicular storm. Two different storm surge scenarios on your hand. Uh, you can't treat those as the same. Um, so uh, those are some of the things, those lessons learned and best practices that we're learning on evacuations um, and how we build our plans now. Um, hopefully make a lot of the decisions now and we just we figured it out. <laughs> Cross your fingers. <laughs> no. Brian, I would also I would also add that the tools that we have as emergency manager at our disposal to use in real time um, to assist in these decisions are far more advanced than they were when I started in emergency management in Florida back in 2004 and 2005. They've really made uh, tremendous progress in advancing the tools that emergency managers use to make these decisions. There's, there's so much available at their fingertips, so much data that they're looking at to make these decisions versus what it was um, just 10, 11, heck, even just five or six years ago, right, Brandon? I mean, For sure. it's really, these are things that, uh, you know, the public doesn't get to see, but I can assure you um, I've been super, super impressed by the advances I've seen in the, in the tools that they're using to help them make a more informed uh, decision. Yeah, there's a very fundamental uh, challenge, I think, though, that, that's going to be with us for our entire time doing this. And going back to the rapid intensification uh, discussion is you have these different kinds of hurricanes. Hur you know, all hurricanes are different. We all know that. But you have the Hurricane Irma's and uh, even Maria to some degree and Sandy that we talked about for days and days and days before they happened. We hate those those paralleling storms like Sandy and and uh, Irma looked like it could have been a paralleling storm. We know those kinds, Charlie, those kinds of storms will always give us headaches. But if you think about the Opal scenario or the Andrew scenario where less than four days before it made landfall as a category five, it didn't even have a circulation. Or of course the uh, famous 1935 Keys scenario where it suddenly, you know, kind of turned and pounced as a category five, just from a public perception standpoint, it's gotta be so much harder to get people motivated to evacuate and take action, even if the orders are out there. Uh, when a storm is weak and, and you know not looking threatening at that point, even with a threatening forecast, even if we got the forecast perfect, I think that the, the fact that it's not being talked about for, for days and days and days uh, is, a, is going to be a challenge no matter what we do. That's, that may be our biggest challenge given the fact that rapid intensification is a possibility. And when you look, Brian, at the, the amount of lead time that, that you have from formation to landfall of hurricanes since the early 80s, early in the season, so June and July, the months that we're in right now, you typically have less lead time. In other words, you don't know a storm is even there, doesn't exist, it's a disturbance, uh, before you get a landfall of, of a hurricane versus going into August and September. Example, in June, on average, you get two or three days notice. In September, on average, you have about nine days notice from when a storm actually forms to when it makes landfall. So there's much more time, to your point, of getting the word out that, hey, there's something out there and we need to be you know, watching it carefully. And so people are listening for those messages from the emergency managers. Yeah, now, except when it doesn't happen that way, of course, sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, you're right. Research uh, on right. how people uh, do 
deal with decision making, uh, what's also exciting about this time is the amount of social science that is getting into the field and meteorology and emergency management. And, you know, you hear time and time again that people are making decisions poorly. They look at one forecast sometimes or, or at one time and they make their decision and they go with it. And they and, and you could tell them something different, but they're, they, they heard the forecast a day ago and they're going with it. And you probably deal with it with just even rainfall chances. Um, it happens. You got But these things are changing. We know the weather's changing, and as we get closer to event, we get better at it and we get more details. So, um, yeah, that's that is a tough part. Is when you have a rapidly intensifying storm or or something that changes. How do you tell the people what you believed yesterday has all changed? What you were planning on yesterday has all changed. Um, and and hopefully you can build that flexibility. It's hard though to say to someone you're going to have to leave your home now. You've never seen water go through your front door, but now you will. Yesterday it was this, now we're thinking something different. It's hard to imagine that and, and trying to communicate that, and, and that's part of our role and your role and, and this whole hurricane program and music role is trying to tell people, you know, let them know the event that they're going to see does not always happen. This does not happen often. Um, you know, all too often, uh, you know, FEMA has a mitigation arm and uh, insurance arm and people believe that just because they haven't flooded all 10 years they lived in a home that they're not they're not uh, vulnerable to flood you know we see too, too too many times too many stories of people telling us stories of my store my house that i just bought did not flood during hurricane charlie and uh, so I, we should be set to go and, and you just kind of cringe and go oh you know just like what michael was just saying every storm is different charlie was a small storm it didn't have the storm surge that the, the storm surge potential was not realized in that very vulnerable area so um it, it's a it's a double-edged sword sometimes and, and one last point is like harvey you mentioned the rapid intensification um how imagine which it, it happened but trying to tell a community that this tropical storm that's forming right now off the Texas coast in the Bay of Campeche down there is going to be a major hurricane in less than 24 hours. Do something. It's hard to convince someone to say a tropical storm, something weak that doesn't look good at the mess, is going to happen. And they did that, actually. They were telling people a major hurricane very shortly, and it was tough for people to change those gears. And that's why in emergency management we, we talk about this planning, these maximum maximums, um, we build a lot of this into our emergency management, but the what ifs, and it sounds like we're going over and above, but that's part of being being ready. That's part of emergency management, going above above and beyond, and saying what if? Yeah, it's a hurricane, but what do I need to do if it goes south on me? How do I protect these people? Because you don't want to be on the the other side of that and saying, oh man, but we can't do anything now. And and that goes back to the importance of having a preparedness plan. Um, you know to the Hurricane Center to their National Hurricane Center and NOAA, to their credit, has been phenomenal with their forecasting. And sometimes I wonder if the, if the public just thinks that, you know, it's a set and forget sort of thing, that um, it's that easy because it's not. It's still a forecast. There's still a, an incredible amount of uncertainty in the forecast. And, you know, having knowing where you're going to go in advance, having, you know, enough food and water for three, five days for your family, um, having a plan in advance if something were to pop up very quickly, you know, either form very quickly and make landfall or rapidly strengthen uh, that wasn't forecast to necessarily strengthen that quickly to know what you're going to do in that scenario. And that's 
I think our job as emergency managers is to really, you know, hammer that home. It doesn't matter what the season is. I know Brandon and I actually had this conversation yesterday about the it only takes one. Um, it's an important message, but I sometimes wonder if we say it so much that it just is falls on deaf ears on, for some people. It's like, ah, you know, but, but it's true. It really is. I, I tell my family, I tell my wife that, look, it only takes one um, because I mean it. And this, just this week you've seen some of the uh, seasonal hurricane forecasts lowered from some of these forecast institutions uh, suggesting that maybe the season might be a below, below average in terms of overall numbers. And that doesn't that should not impact your planning at all. It certainly doesn't impact anything that we do at FEMA. And it, it's good. same goes for your own personal plans. It, you know, it, it's, it, it's amazing how quickly, um, you know, particularly as you get deeper into the season, in August and September, how quickly these things can form and you go from bad to worse. And um, just know that. It doesn't matter how busy or not busy overall the season is. It just takes that. <laughs> Don't say it. I know. I know. I'm not going to say it. I know. <laughs> What if we change it to yeah. hurricanes make landfall in quiet seasons? That's true. Hurricanes can make landfall in quiet seasons. Andrew. Or less, less active seasons. I'll leave it, we'll leave it to you guys come up with a good, some sort of good uh, catchy <laughs> thing that we can use. Hurricanes happen. Hurricanes happen. As Luke said, Andrew, uh, is an example of a hurricane in quiet season, which we use all the time. All right, guys, thank you so much. Uh, that's uh, Brandon Belinsky, who's the hurricane program manager at FEMA Region 4, which includes the southeast from what Mississippi to North Carolina, including, of course, Florida, and uh, meteorologist uh, at FEMA as well. And uh, Michael Lowry, my old friend from the Weather Channel and uh, many, many different uh, hats Michael has worn. He's a subject matter expert on hurricanes and on uh, storm surge, meteorologist there as well. Thank you so much for being with us on our third podcast. And guys, we'll be in touch with you through uh, the hurricane season. Be well. Sounds good. Thanks, thanks for having us on, Brian. Okay. Luke, um, uh, the, the point at the end there was, was really a good one about uh, seasonal forecasts and, and people's reaction to them. How many times have you been asked, what's this hurricane season going to be like? Yeah, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Uh, I was going to, to tee them up, you know, ask that question mm -hmm. and, then, and then let them uh, come back and say, you know, hey, hey it's, uh, we're looking at this quieter season possibly. Uh, does that mean we get to, hey, boys, take your foot off the pedal, relax, don't worry about mm -hmm. it? And, uh, you know, uh, of course not. And there was, uh, I believe, probably Michael if I think about it, that put out a tweet yesterday that took, um, you know, big picture-wise, when you have these quieter Atlantic seasons, just meaning that you have a below-average number of name storms, below-average number of maybe major hurricanes, uh, what years in the past were analogous, were, were like that, where you had, hey, things were pretty settled. If you looked at the big picture, you'd think there's not a whole lot going to happen this season. And then you ended up getting a landfalling major hurricane, and uh, just over the past, uh, since the 50s, I believe that there were six. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it, it, was a, it was a significant number. Of course, 1992, the year that stuck out to me with Hurricane Andrew. So you can still get these big, bad, nasty storms on these quiet seasons. Yeah, well, another storm, another year that uh, sticks out is 1983, which we don't think about in South Florida as much. But I think there were only four storms that year, four named storms, but... Alicia was a Category 3 that hit the Texas coast just uh, southeast of uh, Houston and did a lot of damage in Houston. So, yes, that absolutely is part of it. Um, I need to remind you that 
Hour podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Visit them at miccosukee.com. We really appreciate their help with it. Uh, Luke, uh, the discussion that Brandon was having, and, and Michael as the storm surge guy as well, I think is so important, and we can relate to it in South Florida from Irma last year. Uh, when you think back, and, and I know Irma was your first really big hurricane event, right? And, but I'm, so I'm sure this really sticks in your mind, is uh, we talked about people really taking action days and days in advance of Irma because they had a sense that this terrible storm was going to come toward Miami. And so the people evacuated and, and took all kinds of action, which was very prudent to do. But then the storm uh continued on a slightly different track and of course the center came over uh, naples and it was weaker than feared the national hurricane center thinks of that as being a really a good forecast it was well within uh, average forecast error so uh, a better forecast than average but i think individuals that made those choices uh, prudently in advance think about it well boy i wish the forecasts were better what's your how do you remember that and and, and how do you think about uh, those choices and and that those forecast changes which are really inevitable yeah as far as the choice goes i mean the scary thing is that people might look back on that for next time and then think well you know i evacuated it wasn't necessary at my house so uh, the next time that it comes maybe they don't take it as seriously so that's always a concern there but they made the right decision and you know if you look at you know how well Irma was actually forecast it was they 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 being the National Hurricane Center um, they did a really pretty remarkable job it seems so the breakdown comes in the communication and I look back on it and maybe it's in tone maybe it's in how it's presented maybe it's a focus you know where you can get blinders on and even as a broadcaster where it's our job to say hey you know just remember that this is the it could go on either side of this cone and still be considered a good forecast uh, and there's a possibility it could go outside of this cone because that does happen one-third of the time so um, you know you look at that and you think what lessons can we learn and I think that's the big thing I personally took is you have to communicate um, you know, maybe more, uh, and if it were Irma's example, say the west side is as likely to see it as Miami. And forget about that dark line that you see that initially did run right up the throat of South Beach uh, with the long-range forecast. So there's limited value in that. And we did that, of course, um, but just as a, a footprint in my mind for next time that the cone of uncertainty, the whole thing needs to be discussed as equally possible. Yeah, I mean, in actual, actual numbers, it's not equally possible. But the thing is, once the threat is of a sufficient level, everybody within the threat zone needs to act like it's coming and, and go ahead and take whatever preparative actions they're, they're going to take. That's the thing. Brandon was talking about something that, that is a very important topic in hurricane evacuation planning. It was called the maximum of maximums is what they use, or the MOMs, M-O-M. They're called moms. And what they are is a somewhat, not the absolute worst case, but this reasonable worst case, given all the information that's available about a storm that's heading toward, let's say, South Florida. We, we know, we have confidence that it's coming toward South Florida. Irma is the perfect example. 
but we don't know exactly the angle that it's going to take. We don't know exactly how strong it's going to be. We don't know exactly where the center is going to track uh, versus uh, downtown Miami, uh, for example. Exactly, we don't know that exactly, but we do know it's coming toward South Florida. So what they do at the National Hurricane Center in their storm surge forecast is they imagine a set of reasonable possibilities around that direct line forecast that was right over uh, Miami. And they say, okay, uh, because we can't be absolutely sure, maybe it'll go a little here, maybe a little there, maybe a little stronger, maybe a little faster, maybe a little slower, maybe a little bigger, maybe a little smaller. And let's imagine what would happen in all of those scenarios and then say, okay, since any of those are possible, that's what we have to alert for. So that's the maximum of maximums, the sort of reasonable worst case around the, uh, the forecast. So that's, uh, I think, a, a very important uh, topic, but very hard to explain uh, to the public that the storm surge um, that we're talking about is not a forecast, it's this set of possibilities. Don't you think that's a challenge, Luke? Absolutely. And, you know, we had, um, we, did they just start doing the storm inundation graphic in 2017? Do you know, Brian? Well, they, it went, it became, it became official that it had been out before that uh, on an experimental basis. But, but um, you know, essentially it became, became a, a, an official part of the forecast package. Well, the bottom line is you want to err on the side of caution. When it comes to, you know, this was a cat fire or any hurricane, you want to err on the side of caution, of course. You had this just monster that was barreling towards South Florida, and the center of circulation did pass over South Florida, hit the Keys. So, uh, you know, the threat that it brought was immense, and uh, you'd be foolish to... Um, you know, roll the dice and say, well, eh, we'll, we'll, we'll do um, maybe not the maximum of maximums. We'll do something a little bit less than that. You know, that's, that's the, the point of that information. It's hard as a broadcaster to give the information and, and present it as such. And it's also, I would think, difficult for somebody to look at that graphic and not think, oh, I'm going to get uh, seven feet of storm surge at my house because that's how it presents itself. That's how it looks on camera. So there's a difficulty in explaining it. Um, but, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, evacuations and did people make a right decision. Something interesting happened to me. I, we just did this hurricane special and we went down to the Florida Keys and specifically we went to Big Pine Key and we met a man that uh, had evacuated. And when he came back there, of course, they were sh just in shambles. There was all kinds of destruction and devastation. And some people elected to stay, and it, these people were a, a draw. They were a drain on the people that had returned, the people that had evacuated, now had to take care of these people that needed extra help. They, um, uh, they were taking resources and time away from the people that were back trying to get their lives back in order. I thought that was fascinating. I thought the decision that you make... Uh, to not evacuate could impact your neighbors significantly. Do you, have you ever experienced that or amongst all your years of studying hurricanes and seeing aftermath? Um, have you had something similar to that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous problem in a lot of different ways. It also is a threat to uh, first responders that if people stay in dangerous areas, they're going to do their best to help up to a point. 
And that point can be quite a dangerous point. So uh, that's another reason that evacuation is uh, possible, but evacuations are very, very difficult. And some people stay because they, they really don't have the means or they're afraid if they leave, they you know will lose the only thing of value they have. It's a, it's a very complicated thing, which comes down, of course, to communications in uh, in many ways and and as you said the the um, inundation graphic from the national hurricane center that shows kind of how high the water might be with a storm in a certain area is a difficult graphic to explain to the public and we need to do a, a better job because it really is uh, very very important all right luke uh, uh, we need to wrap it up for this week uh, thanks so much for being with us, I need to remind uh, remind you that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe, and and they would appreciate it if you would go visit them at miccosukee.com and find out all the things they do. Luke, we're going to be uh, back next Wednesday, which will be the 11th of, uh, what is this, July already, mm. and we'll be with you throughout the hurricane season here on uh, the podcast. And you can get the podcast on local10.com or, or wherever you get your podcasts on your Apple Podcast Store or on Android as well. So for Luke Doris here at the Local 10 WPLG Podcast Headquarters, I'm Brian Norcross. We'll see you on Local 10, and thanks for tuning in.